Amen. Kids, you are dismissed to your classes. It's great having you. For those of you who are staying um, in what our kids call Big Church, um, it's great to have you as well. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we are finishing up a series that we've been in this fall, although like Austin said, it hasn't really felt like fall yet. Um, I keep waiting for the temperatures to cool off. I look forward to that. Do you guys look forward to that? I don't look forward to the rain necessarily a little bit, but the cool temperatures are nice. Um, But this fall we've been talking about a question that a lot of people are asking these days. Does church matter? Is the church important? What does it mean to not just attend gatherings on Sunday, but to actually be the people of God together in this world? And maybe specifically and most pointedly, the question goes this way. Do I need the church if I want to be a follower of Jesus? Does the church is even necessary? Can I just kind of go solo and do this thing with God and my spouse or my friends or my small group, like that seems a little better to me. Um, does the church really matter? And what does the church need to look like to matter? And so in these last couple of weeks of this series, we are, we're talking about our church. Um, because a lot of people in our world are saying, you know what, I do love Jesus. I like, I like him a lot. Um, I want to follow him, but God's people are driving me nuts. Mahatma Gandhi is famous for saying, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And here at Cedar Mill Bible Church, we want to be a community that closes that gap. In fact, our mission statement is becoming like Jesus and making him known. We want that gap between who we are and who Christ is to grow smaller and smaller and smaller by his power at work in our lives together. We want to be more like Jesus. Um, Pastor Nick actually turned me on to a quote this week from John Ortberg. And if you know Pastor Nick, this is no surprise to you because he is the pastor of quotes, isn't he? Um, But it's a really good one. And it kind of explains what does it mean? What does this idea of becoming like Jesus really mean? Um, And this is what Ortberg says. The goal of spiritual growth is to live as if Jesus held unhindered sway over our bodies. Of course, it is still we doing the living. We are called by God to live as our uniquely created selves, our temperament, our gene pool, our history. But to grow spiritually means to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place to perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through our eyes, to think what he would think, to feel what he would feel, and therefore to do what he would do. And so in these last few weeks of Why Church, we are talking about Why Church at Cedar Mill, who we are specifically, what defines us, what helps us to to step in and live more and more like Jesus. And we're looking at what we call the seven distinctives, seven distinct qualities we believe should and will define us as a community, as followers of Jesus, such that we will look like Jesus more and more in the world we live in. Last week, we covered our first three distinctives. Today, I'm doing the final four. Um, which is a solid basketball reference just for fun. Okay. Today's message, the final four. Um, Let's dive in. First on the list today, worship fully. 
We believe Jesus is worthy of all our worship, so we worship him with all we are. Um, Austin must have known what I was preaching on today because the songs he sang and chose for our worship today together as a community before this message were perfect, perfect songs. Um, The word worship, by the way, we've talked about this before, but it is so essential. This is so good. I can be reminded of this almost every week. We kind of think about the word worship as a religious word. It's not. It's a human word. The word worship does not just describe religious people or church people. It describes human people, all people. Here's what the word worship means. It comes from an old English word that means worth shape. Worth shape, which means to be shaped by the worth of something. Worship is really just simply when we look at something and say, that is so valuable, that is so significant, so important to me that I will reorient my life around it. And so naturally, the more worth something has to us, the more power it has to shape us. You see, every single person on this entire planet worships. Christians, atheists, religious fundamentalists, non-religious secular humanists, every single person is a worshiping person because our lives are shaped around what matters most to us. Now, with this definition, with this idea that we all worship, our lives are shaped by what is worth the most, let me ask you this, what are you worshiping these days? What is driving and shaping and ordering your calendar, your finances, your thinking. What do you tend to sort of allow your thinking to sort of dwell on and swirl around? Your feelings. What brings out the strong feelings of your life, those strong positive feelings, those strong negative feelings? What is sort of like, what are your hopes? dwelling on? What about your dreams, your worries, your fears? What do, you, what do you tend to worry about? What do you tend to be afraid of? These are things that have so much worth that they've got a hold of your life. What is it that has enough worth to shape your mind and heart and life? One thing shaping my life these days is pickleball. Uh, my buddy Sean, who I play pickleball with, whose wife Chandra, that are hosting today, uh, he knows this to be true. If you know me, you, you know this is true about me. I've always got something I'm kind of into. And it generally, it's like a game or an activity because I'm a seven on the Enneagram and I love to have fun. Um, I also love people. I'm an extrovert. I like connecting with people. I like exercising and I love competition. I'm very competitive. My wife might say a little too much. Um, I don't think so. Uh, Pickleball sort of combines all three of these things. So I'm doing it a lot and I'm sort of ordering my calendar around trying to squeeze it in every week because you got to get friends and partners and a place. And yeah, so there's a little bit of pickleball worship happening in my life, which is maybe why I'm still here, even though the rapture happened. Chandra, I don't know. Um, I'm even ordering my, I mean, I've got this in my brain. Like I've got a marginally expensive paddle. My son's like, you spent that much money on a pickleball paddle, dad? Yeah, I did. And I'm thinking about an upgrade, which my wife doesn't know yet. So she's finding that out today in this sermon. There's safety in numbers, you see. Um, okay. So the, you know, I just want to be clear here. The question isn't, 
Do we order our lives around things in this world? Of course we do. And that is actually a good thing. God wants us. He created us to give worth to the good things in our lives. If you are married, your life should be somewhat ordered around, shaped around your spouse. If you have a career, your life should be in a healthy way, shaped around your job. If you have friends, you should order your life to spend time with them. The question isn't, is there anything besides God shaping our lives? He could be the only one. No, the question is this. Is God the number one thing shaping our lives? Does he have the most worth, the most significance, the most influence to shape who you are? This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. He says, I urge you. Like the old King James, I think, says beseech. I beseech you, which sounds cooler. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He's saying God's love, his mercy, his grace and favor offered to us in Jesus should be worth so much to us that he, above all other things, shapes our bodies. In other words, our entire lives, not just Sunday morning, not just your time in prayer when you decide to pray, not just that devotional time. No, every part of your life, he should shape it because he is worth so much. In his book, You are what you love. James K.A. Smith says this. Since we are meaning-seeking creatures, worship is about our loves and longings in this world. Worship is about growing to truly love and long for the things of God. In other words, does God have so much worth in your life that he doesn't just shape your behavior, what you do and don't do? It's not just rules. It's not just behavior modification. But does God shape the deepest parts of who you are? Does he shape what you love and what you long for? Friends, this is why when we gather together and sing, when we gather together and hear teaching and share the Lord's Supper, we call it what? Worship. Thanks for joining us in worship today because this is the place where we we sort of reset and we reinforce the supreme worth of God to shape our lives above and over everything else in this world. This is the place where we come together and say, oh yeah, God, you're supposed to be first. You're first, you're first. I need to get you back in first. And maybe you needed that reminder today. Maybe today you needed that worship, that reordering of what matters most in your life because something else is challenging God, starting to become worth more to you than he is, starting to shape your life more than he does. Today is the day to put God back in his rightful place in your heart. All right, next distinctive. Engage inclusively. We grow and reflect God's heart when we embrace people different than ourselves. Friends, Jesus modeled this for you and me. 
He embodied this. In fact, Pastor Jeremiah was, was sharing with me this week, and he said, you can just about throw a dart in any gospel and find an example of Jesus doing this because he did it all the time. He was constantly reaching across gender lines and racial lines and religious lines and socioeconomic lines in ways that were radical and crazy for rabbis in his day. Because friends, I don't know if you know this or not, but it was not common practice for rabbis to choose fishermen to be their followers, Jesus did. Leaders in Jesus' day didn't value women, Jesus did. Holy people did not eat with sinners. Jesus did. Jews did not engage Samaritans. Jesus did. The healthy didn't touch lepers. Jesus did. Friends, we must not miss how distinctive Jesus was in this regard. And I believe that he longs for us as his people in this world to be as distinctive as he was in his world because we live in a society right now that on the surface seems to be all about this distinctive. Like inclusivity, is that not the message of our culture right now? Be inclusive, be accepting, be tolerant. And so on the surface, it looks like our world is all about this. But in reality, underneath the surface, I find that our culture is increasingly divided and unaccepting of people with different backgrounds, worldviews, lifestyles, and ideas. People want to be accepting in our world as long as you think like they do and act like they do and talk like they do. In fact, here's what I think our, our world system of inclusion is, and too many Christians have bought into it. If I agree with you on the issues of life, specifically a few hot-button issues, then I'll respect you. And if I respect you, then I can accept you. Then I can invite you into my life, into my home, into my community. Then we can be friends. So it's agree, respect, accept. That's the way things work. But Jesus comes and he seems to sort of say there's a completely different way. In fact, he flips the entire paradigm on its head. He says, Jesus comes and says, I accept you. Just as you are, as a sinner made in the image of God, and because I accept you, I'll look for ways to respect you. You ever notice how Jesus, when he interacts with people, he's constantly sort of respecting them. Even when they're living very unrespectable lives, he's looking for things to just value in them and respect them for. And then, from that place of acceptance and respect, he says, we'll work towards agreement about the issues of life. I will instruct you to think more like me. So Jesus says, it's not agree, respect, accept. It's accept, respect, and then agree. You see, for Jesus, engaging someone inclusively never meant that he agreed with everything they thought or affirmed all the choices and actions in their life. That's not what it means. And we have picked, by the way, this word engage very strategically because it's not a passive word. It's an assertive word. It's a word that says, we will be proactive the way Jesus was proactive. You know, Jesus, if you read the Gospels, you'll notice this. He's constantly taking his disciples on field trips, which I love about Jesus because I don't know if you liked field trips when you were a kid, but I loved field trips. Like, it was like field trip day, let's go, right? And why would you go on a field trip? You go on a field trip to get out of your comfort zone, to get out of your normal routine, to try and see things differently and experience things differently. And Jesus wanted this for his followers. And so he chose to take them up north to Tyre and Sidon, 
Rabbis didn't do that too often. It's a very pagan area. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi. We talked that a few weeks ago. He sails with them across the lake to the Decapolis, where Jews like were kind of forbidden to go. He initiates interactions with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. And then he even decides, hey, you know, when we, we're traveling back north to Galilee from Jerusalem, we're going to take the road through Samaria. And his disciples are like, what? And he's like, field trip. You see, this is a very important point when it comes to engaging people different than ourselves. Here it is. Ready? We have to work at it. It, doesn't, it won't just automatically happen in our lives. We have to be proactive to go out of our way. Why? Because the normal patterns of our lives do not cause us to intersect with people who aren't like us. You know, I walk around my neighborhood and there are a lot of people like me. Imagine that. I go to work, lots of people like me. I come to church, lots of people like me. I stand on the sidelines at my kids' and grandkids' games. Lots of people like me. We must recognize that there are some very strong societal and cultural forces at work to keep you in your tribe. Computer engineers are building algorithms to keep you in your tribe and to convince you that it's the best place to be. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to engage differently. We are called to engage inclusively because this is how Jesus came to engage us. He came that you and I might be included, included in relationship, included in love, included in truth, included in redemption and restoration. And now our calling is to be like him to be his ambassadors in this world, to reach across the lines that divide us and engage the world inclusively. Next, trust radically. We follow God into the uncomfortable. Friends, this very upfront idea is that following Jesus is not just believing something getting your ticket to heaven, and then trying to live the most comfortable, risk-adverse life that you possibly can. In fact, when you read the Bible, you find it to be quite opposite of this. The people who most faithfully followed God, who trusted him the most, they surrendered control of their lives to his direction. And then they found themselves in some of the most difficult, scary Precarious, uncomfortable situations you can imagine. Abraham, called to leave his homeland and go to a place he'd never seen before. Noah, build a boat in the middle of the dry season. Moses, living a very comfortable life out in the country. God comes to him and says, let's go confront the most powerful man in the world. You and me together. Right? And he's like, I don't know, God. It doesn't sound like a very good plan. Not fitting into my dreams here. Esther, a woman in the ancient world who had secured for herself a, a life of wealth and pleasure and security, which was very unique for women in that time period, specifically Hebrew women. And then God comes to her and says, it's time to risk it all, to fight for justice and my name and my people. Will you follow me? Will you do what I'm asking you to do? You see, friends, time and again, the story of the Bible is God saying to his children, have so much faith in me. Trust me so fully and so radically that no matter what the possible cost, I will go 
where you say to go, and I will live how you're asking me to live in spite of safety and popularity and earthly security and comfort. I will lay all that down to trust you. That's called faith. And I was thinking this week about how this distinctive is a call for us to follow God into the uncomfortable, but how it's also an invitation to trust God when the uncomfortable finds us. Because this happens in the scriptures too, doesn't it? It's not always that people just follow God into these scary big things. Sometimes they're just sort of thrust into them. I mean, I think of Joseph. It wasn't like, God, I'm going to follow you into this pit that my brothers are going to throw me into, and then I'm going to follow you into slavery, and then I'm going to follow you into temptation. No, this stuff just happens. It just happens in Joseph's life. And then he has a decision to make. Will he trust God in those moments? Will he live by faith? And I bring this up because for some of you in this room, You don't need to follow God into the uncomfortable today because the uncomfortable has already found you. And now in this moment, you have a decision to make. Will I trust God in this place? Will I live by faith in this moment? Will I rely on him? And will I look to him for security and peace and strength and direction and hope? Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Doesn't that sound great? Oh yeah, whoever lives by faith, I want to do it. That sounds awesome. Who doesn't want to live by faith today? Yes, yeah. Well, let me tell you how Jesus describes that. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, living by faith, it sounds great in a sermon, but in life it can be real hard. Jesus' calling isn't always easy or simple or safe, but it is where you find God. It is where you find intimacy and connection with him. It is where you find what Jesus calls the abundant life, the joy-filled life, the peace-filled life. When you learn to trust radically. All right, last distinctive today, love extravagantly. This is probably one of the most over-talked about, underlived qualities of Christians in our world today. I mean, who doesn't love to talk about love? I mean, you can go to Target and find like seven different wall hangings with the word love on it, maybe 27. I mean, everyone loves love, and yet, And yet, we often misunderstand it. And it is perhaps the most defining quality of a person who follows Jesus, or it should be. Remember, Jesus asked, what's the number one thing about living the godly life? Like, what's the number, what's the most important? Boil it down for us, Jesus. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. One of Jesus' followers, a guy named Paul, was sold out for people experiencing the abundant life and following Jesus in this world. And so he'd write things like this, follow the way of love. The goal of our instruction is love. Beyond all these things, put on love. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Over and over again, the scriptures say, one of, if not the key component of following Jesus is learning to love like Jesus. So what does it mean to love? How should we love? 
One of the reasons I believe people are walking away from the church is that our love is too often more conditional and less generous than the love people experience in the world. Think about that for a minute. I mean, listen to these words from Jesus. And by the way, this is a direct challenge for his followers who at the time lived in a very politically polarized, morally divided culture. That was the first century Israel. A bunch of different ideologies and groups who had strong, strong opinions opposing one another about what does it mean to live in this world? What's the right way to live? What's the best way to live? How should our nation function? Polarizing, dividing, at, at war with one another in a sense. And actually, in, in some cases, in reality. And Jesus speaks into that kind of a polarized society. Maybe he would speak to ours. Here's what he says. If you're following me in that kind of a world, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And if you greet only your own people, who are your people? Who are your people in this world? People that talk like you and think like you and dress like you and vote like you and, you know, fill in the blank. Everything else like you. If you love only them, then aren't you just like everyone else in the world, Jesus is saying? He's calling us to a different kind of love, a love that's extravagant. You want to hear what the word extravagantly means? It means this, an excessive amount, exceeding the bounds of reason, going beyond what is deserved. I think of the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. This guy who worked for Rome, who had betrayed his people, was working for the enemy betraying his own people for personal gain. Now think about how we would just drag that person on social media these days, right? How we would just hate on them and just like people would hate on him and we'd like that they hated on him. It'd be like, I like it, right? This guy's a real jerk. Like, yeah. Because we like and love to hate on people and we would have been hating on Zacchaeus. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. I'm going to publicly associate myself with you. We're going to hang out and do dinner for all to see. Think of the woman at the well who is, is, she's just shocked that Jesus will even give her the time of day because she is such an outcast in society that she has to come to the well to draw water when no one else is around. She couldn't even be around the other women. I think of the prostitute who comes and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears while the religious leaders stand by, disgusted and judging and aghast. I think of the rich young ruler. Some of you know this story. This rich guy comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which in the ancient world was a way of saying, like, what does it look like for me to live for God? How do I live for God in this world? And Jesus says, you know, the commandments, right? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, Don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. It's such a good religious churchy answer, isn't it? It's like Jesus is kind of giving them the the chintzy church answer and it's like a little bit of a softball and the guy's like, oh, sweet, I do all that. He's like, oh yeah, one more thing. What's he say? You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And then it says, he went away sorrowful, 
because he had great possessions. <laughs> so, so Jesus tells him this really difficult, hard truth that he needs to hear. He says to him, in a sense, you're doing all these religious things, but your real security in life, your real joy, the idol that you are truly worshiping and living for is your money. It's your possessions. So give it up and lay it down. And then you will like, be barrier free to experience the abundant and exhilarating life of really trusting me and living for me. Then you'll have the, this, this life your heart is longing for. Then you'll have it. But here's the interesting part of that whole story. You're like, why are you telling this story right now? Here's why. Because right before Jesus offers this guy this challenge, here's what he's, it, it tells us. It says, Jesus, the guy comes and says, tell me what to, how to live. And he says all these things. He says, great, I'm doing it. And then Jesus, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved him. And then he offers them, him this really, really big challenge. Here's the message. Loving people is not always easy. It's not always a feel-good experience. It's not just telling people what they want to hear or taking the road of least resistance or greatest convenience. Sometimes, oftentimes, love takes courage and risk and sacrifice and fortitude and grit and backbone. And it always, always means thinking of what the other truly needs and what is best for them. That's biblical, Jesus-like love. And listen to our tagline for this one, because, you know, every one of these distinctives has a tagline, and the tagline is to, is to like, help these distinctives not just be some words, but to sort of push them out into our lives. How do I live this out? What does it look like? Listen to the tagline for love, love extravagantly. This is the most challenging tagline of all of them for me. We love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. Does that sound really fun to you? You're thinking of some people right now, right? There's some people, right? They're popping in your brain. Some faces, some names. Who doesn't expect your love these days? Maybe even doesn't deserve your love these days. But who needs your love these days? Because here's the final point. The most extravagant love in the history of the world was offered on a cross. Look at it. Look at the cross. We see it all the time. It hangs around our necks. It's plastered on our buildings. It's the most extravagant love in the history of the world. And it was offered by the God of the universe to you and to me, people who did not deserve it in any way. Friends, we must never forget and we must fully understand and grow to embrace more and more that we as followers of Jesus are people of the cross. It defines us. We are defined as followers of Jesus, as, as people of the unexpected, undeserved, overwhelming, extravagant love of God. More than anything, that is who we are as a community. And friends, when we find that that 
Love begins to form us and shape us and change us. When that kind of love, that extravagant love that was completely undeserved and that we could never earn and that we don't deserve, when it chases us down and gets a hold of our minds and hearts and lives, then I think the question, then I think the question in our culture will change from why church to how can I get in on a life like that? You see, when people see extravagant love in you and in me, when it's flowing into us and out of us, then all of a sudden they'll stop saying, why would I go to church? And they'll start saying like, how do I get in and to be part of that group? And so today I'll just close by saying this, God, God, may it be so. May it be so of us. May it be so of me. May it be so of this church, Cedarville Bible Church, that we would be distinctive the way Jesus is distinctive. Amen? Amen. Stand and let's sing together.